All right, good morning, everybody. Praise the Lord. All right, glad to have you all here with us this morning. And uh, we're going to get into a little study here today. Um, on Wednesday evening, I started in with uh, our men's Bible study. I really would like to encourage you to, I've said this so many times now, but it really is, it would really be smart for you to come out to Bible study on Wednesday night. It would really be wise for you to come out to Bible study. If you can, because we get into the Word. So anyway, we, uh, we started in with a, with a, uh, um, a new study on Wednesday night, and the study just kind of got a hold of me. And uh, so I just kind of kept on going in it, and then I had a couple of really busy days. Thursday, Friday, we, uh, Joel had mentioned before, we've had all this crazy weather, and I think all of the water of Oak Ridge runs right down into my house down there. So, um, so we had a few days of just dealing with some of that stuff. And so anyway, I figured, okay, maybe I'll, maybe I'll just bring in a little bit of the book of Hebrews this morning and we'll, uh, we'll take that direction. So um, this is really, this is a fantastic book because it draws together both the Old and the New Testament, right? Hebrews obviously is being written to Jewish people, Jewish believers, right? The letter is being written to Jewish believers and we'll talk about what its significance is and, and, and how it all ties together. But it kind of helps us to understand the New Testament in light of the Old or the Old Testament in light of the New. It gives us the upgraded information. It gives us the update on the plan of God. If we were to ask a person in the first century, what is the most important part of the plan of God, a Jewish person would say, to restore Israel. If you recall, that just as Jesus is departing, as he's about to ascend into heaven, just before that, Acts chapter one, they say, Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, that's what they think is the target. That's what they think is the goal. And of course, his response is, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons which the Father has placed under his own power, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then you will be my witnesses. You will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So the plan of God changed in terms of its focus in the New Testament. The focus, the emphasis of the plan of God is much different than it was in the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, the Jews believed that they had the call from God to become the head and not the tail, to become the first and not the last. They believed that they were to walk in the blessing and they were and that seemed to be like the zenith. That seemed to be the apex or the goal of everything was to raise up the nation of Israel, and then other nations would flow to it. But unfortunately, uh, that was only a temporary plan and it never really worked anyway because the Jewish people really were not faithful to the call of God on their lives. So anyway, we're going to get into this book of Hebrews because it, it, it really gives us a great understanding of what the plan of God is right now and, um, and how, we can be, um, how, how we can participate with it. All of the world's philosophies... All the world's religions attempt to answer the, the most basic, most fundamental questions of these frail and short human lives that we are living. Who are we? Why are we here? Is there a God? Can we know him? If we can know him, how do we come to know him? How do we make sense of the trials and the hassles and the difficulties of this present life that we're living, especially in the light of the certainty of death? Did a... Uh, a funeral yesterday for a guy uh, that I had known for a while, his guitar player and what have you, and he just died rather suddenly on Christmas, and um, was a, 
It was a great funeral, if that's the right thing to say. I, I hope my funeral is like that. I hope everybody comes and has a wonderful things. I, I actually was thinking yesterday, you know, it's such a sad thing that your funeral happens after you die. Because everybody comes together, and the way we normally work things is, you know, we'll, we'll say a few words, and we'll have a few scriptures, and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll take care of that end of things. But really, the, 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 the best part of the, uh, of the event is the people who get up and share, well, you know, this person did this thing for me, or that person just had a great attitude, or they had so much ability, or so whatever it may happen to be, but all these wonderful words of praise and <clears throat> all these acknowledgments are made and you're long gone. I don't know whether or not, you know, you can actually, I, I don't think you can look back down. I know there's actually in the book of Hebrews where it says uh, in chapter, uh, chapter 12, therefore seeing that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run the race with patience looking into Jesus. You know that if you've been <coughs> in chapter 12 of Hebrews before. But um, it sounds like all these people are up there and they're all looking down. But I got a feeling if you're up there, um, I don't think it's all that interesting to look back down here. Matter of fact, it probably is pretty depressing. <laughs> so anyway, um, we look for answers to these life questions. And in, in the modern world, the, the real question is, does it really even matter what you believe, just as long as you're sincere? That's the way many people feel. As long as I sincerely hold to what I believe, um, that's good. I'm good. And um, so anyway, the letter to Hebrews answers all of these most basic, most fundamental questions. But I must warn you that its answers oftentimes are pretty difficult. They cut across the grain of many of the popular views of our day. We live in a time when being tolerant and being judgmental are, like, are seen as primary virtues, right? That if you were to say something against what somebody else thinks or what somebody else believes. You seem very intolerant. Truth is viewed as subjective and personal, not absolute and universal. So if Buddhism makes you happy, um, if it gives you a sense of fulfillment, who am I to say that you're wrong? And so this is kind of a basic mindset, right? That, that, a basic 21st century mindset. If you believe in Islam, if you believe in Hinduism, you may believe in Judaism, or any of the other world's religions, or any combination thereof, as long as you're not hurting somebody, it would be judgmental of me to say that you are believing a lie. That is kind of the general perception. That's the, pre that's the prevailing uh, mindset in, of our tolerant culture. Of course, the only person that cannot be tolerated is a person who says that they believe in the truth. The person who says that there is a truth and that that truth can be known, that's the person who cannot be tolerated. So the letter of Hebrews cuts across all of this uh, modern mindset by affirming three things. That God is. Okay, this is going to be the starting point of this book. We're, we're not going to get too far in this study here this morning because these first three verses are so jam-packed and so filled with spiritual truth, but the book starts out by affirming God is. It's not a discussion. It's not a debate. No evidence is being compiled. No rational, no reasons are being um, offered. The statement is merely being made that God is, secondarily, that he has spoken. All right. we, we have a God who is a communicating God. But a little later on in the message, we'll see that God has three ways by which he has communicated his, 
his message communicated his truth into our life. So the, so the letter of Hebrews starts out with the fact that God is, that he has spoken, and third, that his son, who is the epitome of his revelation, is now the supreme ruler over everything and all things. <clears throat> to turn away from him, to turn away, of course we're talking about Jesus, to turn away from Jesus to any other system or any other way of attempting to approach God is to turn towards certain judgment. See, that's not the kind of stuff that we like to hear in the modern world today. We, that just sounds very intolerant, doesn't it? That sounds very exclusivist, it sounds very elitist, and yet um, it's true. So only Christ is gonna be able to help us to understand our life, understand God, understand our world, understand where it's all going, understand where we fit into it, and understand how do we make sense of the craziness that comes along with it sometimes, to make sense of the difficulties and the trials that we go through. <clears throat> so the most important thing that we need to do in terms of this relationship that we've come into with Christ is to consider him more fully to give more attention to all of this, to submit to him at all times and trust him through the trials of this life. So this book in general is a call to consider more fully this matter of who Jesus Christ is. Is he just one more great person among great persons? Is he just one more teacher or prophet among teachers and prophets? Or is he unique? Is he the, is he the unique um, individual? And that's, of course, where the book of Hebrews is going to, uh, to lead us. In fact, the word consider shows up in this book of Hebrews a number of times, either the, the very, that, that, that word specifically to consider or, or something else that is more or less synonymous or analogous to it. Let me show you a couple of the, the passages that, uh, that bring this to our attention. There we go. <clears throat> Here's one from Hebrews chapter two and verse one. Paul writes to these people and he says, therefore we must give the more earnest heed. That means to consider, amen? Would you say, right? If I've gotta give more earnest heed to something, it needs, I, need, I need to give it a little more consideration. Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. And that's what the danger is here. That, that, is the da that is the danger of losing touch with your salvation or losing touch with our relationship with God. The danger is you, you won't fall off the edge of the world immediately. There's just a drift that happens. Actually, the language that um, is being used there in that second chapter is the same language that's used in other places to talk about a boat that is, that is moored somewhere, that is tied up somewhere to a you know, to a dock or something like that, and then the rope slips off. And then just gradually, 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 the thing just slips away and it's gone. And that's the same danger that, that this book is speaking to us about, this graduality, this graduality? I don't even know if it's a word. This gradualness of the, or, or this, this um, impending reality that if, we, if we're not paying attention, what will happen is little by little, by little we will find that we've just drifted from the Lord and, and lost that sense of his presence. So chapter two tells us to give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard lest we drift away. Here's another one. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him 
as Moses was also, also was faithful in all of his house. So here, again, the, uh, the idea is being presented that we need to um, give, to, to consider the apostle and high priest of our, profession, of our confession, Christ Jesus, consider his faithfulness, another, another reference to that uh, topic. Here's another one. This one is not specifically about Jesus, but it's about another person who shows up in this book who is kind of this mysterious, enigmatic figure that arises out of the book of Genesis. His name is Melchizedek. Okay, and when we come across Melchizedek in the book of Genesis, we don't really know anything about him. Now, the interesting part of this is that if there's anything that's true about the Bible, the Bible is very careful to document the pedigree of everybody. In other words, we're not just, we're not, it doesn't supply us with myths. It doesn't supply us with people who have no history, no genealogy, no place. It actually is very particular to make sure that so-and-so was the son of so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and you know how, how it all works. And that's all the way throughout the Bible, right on up to the New Testament, to prove the very pedigree of Jesus, that it traces him all the way back to the line of David, same thing with Mary. So it's very important in the book, uh, in, in the Bible, that we know that these are real people who lived at a real time in history and, um, and not just myths or figures that someone has made up. But in the book of uh, Genesis, we come across this interesting guy named Melchizedek. Now, the, the situation by which we come across him, is Abraham has got himself in trouble, and I better not get off on Abraham's whole story. But Abraham, well, Abraham has taken up a problem. His nephew Lot and a bunch of other people are being hassled by this coalition of five kings who have come, have stolen them, taken hostages, and taken all of their stuff. Abraham's not going to settle for this, and so he decides to put his own little posse together, and off they go. They <clears throat> deal with these, um, this coalition of five kings. They take back all the booty and all the stuff, but Abraham knows he's got to render to the Lord what belongs to the Lord. He wants to tithe. That's something we want to talk about one of these days. Whoa, 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 whoa. Oh, it's, oh, it's just so tempting. No, not really, not really. <clears throat> but he... He knows that it's, it's right for him to take what God has made available to him and return one-tenth of it to the Lord. And so he goes to what became Jerusalem ultimately, and he meets this guy who is the, the priest of the Most High, who is Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Or if we were speaking Jewish this morning, we'd probably say the king of Shalom. And it really means the king of peace. Melchizedek is the king of peace. So he's this figure, but we don't know who his father is. We don't know who his parents' mother is. We don't know anything about his history. We don't know where he came from. All we know is that this guy Melchizedek shows up, and he is described as the king of Salem, king of Shalom, the king of peace, and Abraham goes and gives tithe to him. Now, when Jesus comes along, um, there is the claim that Jesus is of the same priesthood as this interesting guy named, named Melchizedek. So now it says in this particular verse, now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of his spoils. Another one, a little further on in uh, Hebrews chapter 10. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love 
and good works. So the, again, this word consider comes up one more, and this is probably, this is probably the, uh, the strongest word, and uh, one certainly that speaks to us in terms of difficulty and trials. We are, we are encouraged in Hebrews chapter 12 to consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your soul. Has anyone ever gotten weary or discouraged in your soul? No, not here. There we go. There's an honest hand. Yeah, I mean, this process, right? That, that, well, part of that has a whole lot to do with the fact that there is an adversary to all of this, and there is a devil who just simply wants to shut you down and take you out, especially if you are a fruitful, fruitful and fruit-bearing Christian. And so things will come along our way, and, uh, but it... But it by keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, which is what it actually says there in that uh, 13th or 12th chapter, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. That was his trial. That was his suffering. That was his difficulty that he rose to the occasion for, that he endured because he knew it was part of the plan of God, the will of God to fulfill the call of God on his life. So, we are called to consider him, think more carefully about him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your soul. So the letter was a call to the community of Jewish believers, Messianic believers, and it's a call very much to us today to give more careful consideration to the person, to the message, to the work, to the victory, to the saving purpose of Jesus Christ our Lord. Now there was a reason that this letter was being written. It's kind of interesting because we don't know who the author is. There have been all kinds of things written. Um, who was it? Um, I forget. I, um, Origen believed it was uh, Paul. Different people, some believed it was Apollos because Apollos was mighty in the scriptures. Some people have theorized it could have been Priscilla writing together with uh, Aquila. But nobody really knows. And I think that, that is the final answer. Only God knows. So God knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. Um, and the, the other interesting part is, to whom is this book written? Why is this book written? And so the reason behind the writing of this letter is that um, people were experiencing serious pressure to turn away from their newfound faith in Christ and go back to their old Jewish roots. In particularly in the first, first century world, as a Jew, if you received Christ, that was a definite statement that was contrary to everything that your world was about. That was a betrayal of everything that your world was about. Jesus had been rejected. He was not esteemed to be Messiah. He was esteemed to be a criminal, an outcast, a person, one simply to be crucified. But as more and more Jews became saved and began to follow Messiah Jesus, what happened is the, the rest of the community abandoned them rejected them, and actually began to persecute them. So since your whole life was tied up with the rest of the Jewish community, you might lose your job, you, your friends would all turn away from you, your family would all turn away from you, you would be all on your own. And so they were experiencing some serious pressure, really serious pressure, and the easy way out, the easy thing to opt out to would be just simply to go back. Just go back to your Jewishness, go back to your old ways. And that is exactly what Paul is writing, or what uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews 
is writing to, to in, uh, encourage them. They were tempted because of persecution to go back to their Judaism. They had begun well, they had started well, but now they were, now they were having difficulty as the trials intensified, and many of them had just stalled in their Christian growth. They were thinking about going back to the good old days, when life was easy, when family and friends were around, when they could go through the motions of their Jewish religion without much interference. Judaism was tolerated by the Romans. So there really wasn't much opposition. It wasn't always perpetually tolerated. But at this time, Judaism was allowed, whereas Christianity was not. So their foreboding about looming persecution tempted them to abandon their faith in Christ and go back to their Judaism. So the author writes, and sometimes in some, some places, actually three or four places in this book, he writes very, very strongly to warn his readers against this danger, that this is not an uh, this is not a, a, a attack that they want to take. So the book contains several strong warning sections that to abandon Christ is to drift into apostasy. And again, the overall theme is that Jesus, because Jesus Christ is supreme over all, Christians must endure their current trials by faith. So I want to put up here a little bit of a brief outline of this book to know where we're going to be going. And the, and, and the entire message of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews revolves about around one statement. Christ is better. Christ is better than anything you've had. Christ is better than anything you've known. Christ is better than any, any offer or any deal or any situation or any person. It has all been eclipsed in his greatness. Okay, so as we go through this book, we'll see all these different things illustrated. So here's the, the outline. Huh? Okay. Jesus Christ, I'm not sure how that happened. Jesus Christ is superior to all in his person. Jesus Christ is superior to the prophets. Chapter 1, 1 through 3. Jesus Christ is superior to the angels. Jesus is superior to Moses. Jesus is superior to Joshua, and I think that's where that other thing came from. The second section is Jesus Christ is superior to all in his priesthood, okay? The priest is the person who stands in between God and man. The priest represents man to God, and the priest represents God to man. Jesus is superior in his own priesthood. He is superior to um, Aaron um, and, and the Aaronic priesthood. Then the third section brings us into Jesus Christ is superior to the Old Covenant. Jesus offers better promises. Jesus offers a better tabernacle. What is the tabernacle? Well, it's him, right? It says in the first chapter, John, and, and <clears throat> in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. All things were made by him, and without him nothing was made. Then he goes on to say, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt there is actually, in, in the original Greek, tabernacled. So he came and tabernacled. Now, what was the tabernacle in the Old Testament? It was the house of God. It was the place where God's presence resided, and it was the place where, essentially, God was. But once Jesus came into earth, there was no need for a temple or a tabernacle anymore. And, and even, even more wonderfully beyond that, yes, Jesus was the, he was the, the temple of the living God, but now in Christ, 
you and I become the temple of the living God. Where Paul writes to the people of Corinth, right, and says, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and that you are not your own, but that you have been bought with a price? Therefore, glorify God with your body and with your mind, which are his because he purchased them. He bought them for himself. So, so all of these, everything, we have one more, let's see. Yeah, to the old, oh, we got, we got a ways to go. Jesus Christ has, um, is a better tabernacle, offers a better tabernacle. Um, Jesus Christ offers a better sacrifice. In the Old Testament, the sacrifices were many and varied and had to be applied in certain ways. Certain things had to be sacrificed under certain circumstances. Kind of... Um, not much fun reading about it if you happen to be working your way through Leviticus or something like that. It just doesn't seem to relate all that well. But in the New Testament, we don't have any of that to consider. We already have a sacrifice, and there could not be a greater sacrifice than Jesus Christ himself, who offered himself on our behalf. And then finally, Christ's superiority should stimulate us to enduring faith in the face of trials and difficulties. Enduring faith always obeys God when under trial. Enduring faith is illustrated throughout the scriptures. Actually, you'll you'll see the reference there, 11, 1 through 40. He's going to take us to the hall of faith, Hebrews chapter 11. He's going to take us through this whole list of faithful saints and faithful people who were faithful in their time and who, who, who came through by faith. That's going to be the whole focus. And so this whole book is here to build up our faith, but what is our faith to be focused on? What is our faith to be centered on? On Jesus himself. Right? On Jesus as Lord. That's where the strength is. That's where the focus of faith actually is. So in, enduring faith looks to, whoa, we got a couple more. Enduring faith looks unto Jesus and submits to his discipline. That's going to be what chapter 12 is going to talk to us about. Lift up the heavy hands that hang down and strengthen the knees and, you know, don't be, don't be discouraged um, because of the fiery trials that right now you're being called to go through. Because enduring faith looks unto Jesus and submits his discipline. Looking unto Jesus, Hebrews chapter 12, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hallelujah. In other words, because he was faithful and rose to the occasion, and he was faithful to God, and he endured the cross. You know that he didn't want the cross. He said, Father, if there's any way for this thing to pass away from me, let it be, but nevertheless, not my will. It's your will that is to be done. And every one of us goes through that season every once in a while, right? Where something comes along and you're, I was there, (laughs) I was there this week. Big time. I'm talking about all this water and flooding, all this stuff. It's like, oh, can this trial just pass away from me? I guess not. All right, then give me grace, give me strength, give me peace and help me to stand up and to, and, and, and to be faithful to you in the midst of all of it, right? So because of what Jesus did, it strengthens us to face the challenges and the difficulties and the hurts and the disappointments and the heartaches and things that just sometimes just seem to keep on coming here on planet Earth. So we are strengthened by watching Jesus or looking unto Jesus and submitting to his discipline. And then finally, enduring faith expresses itself in practical holiness with God's people. Let us, let us 
find ways to encourage one another to love and to good works. And so um, practical holiness with one another is a major part of what is stimulated by Christ um, as we observe who he is and what he did. So with that as an overview, do you feel like you're drinking from a fire hose yet? All right, it's kind of a lot of stuff there pretty quick. But with that as an overview and kind of a general introduction, then let's examine in detail this morning Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. We're going to take these, these first four verses, which show this. Ah, God has spoken to us in his word with his son being the supreme and final Revelation. As we begin our consideration of the importance of who Christ is and what he's done, there's no better place to begin than with the consideration of God himself. So here's, here's our text. Here's the first four verses of the book of Hebrews. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he has, by inheritance, obtained a more excellent name than they. Right? What does it tell us in the book of Philippians? For this reason. What reason? Because being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto the cross, even the death of the cross. For this reason. God also has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every other name. So he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. The text falls into two sections, God speaking in the past and God speaking in the present. Let's take a moment and pray. Lord, we th- I thank you for this incredible book. I thank you for the information the insight that comes forth from this book. I thank you for whoever it was that wrote it and, the, and, the, and the, uh, the knowledge and insight that you gave to them. We thank you most of all for yourself, for who you are, for coming into this world, for becoming one of us. It's insane that you did that. But it's amazing that you did it. It's wonderful that you have come to be a part of our world, come to be a part of this life, and come to be a part of our humanity so that we might share in your divinity. What a deal. I give up my sinful humanity and I get your holy divinity. Good deal. So I I thank you for this opportunity to study this book together. Pray, Lord God, that you will speak. I'm I'm, I'm inclined to think that perhaps someone is caught up in some real difficulties or some real trials or some real pressures in their life. And Lord, I pray this day that these words will be of encouragement to every heart, to every spirit here in the room. And I pray, oh Lord God, that uh, you will allow us to exalt you. This is what we want to do. We want to lift you up that you can draw people unto yourself. So Lord, bless our time together. We pray this morning, bless this word as we proclaim it. May it just, may it take root in our heart 
May it strengthen us to be better servants for you. Pray this now in Jesus' name and for his sake and all of God's good-looking people said, You sound a little insecure about that. Well, Anyway, so the text falls into two sections, how God has spoken in the past and now how God is speaking in the present. In the past, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. <clears throat> so the author begins without any formal greetings, any formal comments, formal, not identifying himself, not specifically um, talking about who it is that this letter is to be sent to. He just simply starts by talking about God. God is and God has spoken. Hebrews 1.1 kind of reminds us of Genesis 1.1. It just focuses on God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There no, no, you know, no, no, there's no speculation about this. There's no philosophizing. There are no arguments being compiled to persuade skeptics that God exists. It just simply starts with the fact of God. For the author of Hebrews, God is central. In fact, he brings up God over 68 times in the book. Now, someone may say, well, I don't know if I'm there yet. I'm, I'm an agnostic. You know, I'm, not, I'm really not sure whether or not a God exists. Or another person might say, well, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. To all such persons, this is what God says. Your doubts or your beliefs do not affect the fact that God is. It's as if the Bible thrusts God in your face and says, deal with this. And there are many things in our world. I want to go over the things by which God has revealed himself to us in this, uh, in this world. And, and so God is not, the writer is not offering any reasons, any justifications for his presentation of God. He's just simply saying, deal with this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It, the, the most amazing thing to me is how science do I want to take this time? No. But all of science, all of modern science exists today because the people who began it were Christians. Bacon, Kepler, Newton, um, Van Leeuwenhoek, all of the earliest, earliest scientists, Pasteur, they were all devout Christians, and here's why they pursued science. They believed that the world, because the world had been created by a rational, intelligent God, and he, then he had created us to be rational, intelligent, rational and intelligent, we could study the world and learn more and more about it because it had been created by an intelligent God. And so they, that, that was the rationale behind Starting science, the investigation, to dig in, to study, to understand it, to know it. It was all started by Christians, Lord Bacon. We're all talking, we're talking about like the 1600s, 1500s, into the 1600s. But today, science has taken this terrible anti-God turn. Scientists resist and reject God because they have been led to believe that if they admit God, then there'll be no more study. Everything will just simply be, oh, well, God did that. Well, what, what is this thing? I don't know, God did it. So using the, 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 the term is the God of the gaps. But it is, it is a horrendous failure, and, it, and it, it is bringing us into more and more and more and deeper confusion. I was listening, I was listening to, here's, it, it, I, w I was so tempted to just bring this this morning and play it for you, but 
Um, I didn't. <clears throat> but I was also listening to John Lennox. Now, John Lennox is a brilliant mathematician, Cambridge mathematician. He's um, head of mathematics department in Cambridge University. The, but the, the guy is as sweet as you could possibly imagine your grandfather to be. Sweet and loves the Lord. Well, I've, se I've seen him tear up Richard Dawkins in debates with this loving spirit. Anyway, you know what is happening right now? Our world is developing so quickly. Our technology is developing at an incredible pace, and our morality is declining at an incredible place. So we don't know what human beings are. We don't know what their purpose is because we have abandoned everything that God has said about us. So now man just becomes some meat, just becomes an object just because something to experiment on. And what is happening right now, and billions of dollars are being invested in this, is transhumanism. The first step is this whole gender fluidity and this, you know, all, all that trans stuff. That, you know, men are not men. Men can be women. Women can be men. There's, there's no reality to this nature. It's just all in your mind. It's all just a subjective feeling. Because all connection with the original creator, with the God who at various times and in his various ways spoke to us in the past through the prophets, but has now spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed heir of all things because we have lost touch with that. And so we are in danger of creating a world full of cyborgs. Does that sound too weird for you? That's where it's going. That's where it's going because it is science run amok, not constrained in any particular way by truth or righteousness or morality. And so... There are some terrible things on the planning board ahead for us. And I, I, I think possibly a good, another good reason why we should know this book of Hebrews is we, might, we will be the last stop. We will be standing on the train wrecks going, on the, on the train tracks going, stop, stop. But the rest of the world will think, this is great. Now we're going to make these half man, half whatever creatures, and they can do all the work for us, and we can just have a nice leisurely life. They're talking about, by the time we get to 2050, abolishing death, or you'll have an option. You'll have an option as to whether you want to die or not. We're coming into a strange new world. I'm kind of off my topic, I guess, a little bit. Huh? <laughs> but, but it's important that we're aware of what is going on and just kind of not naive to everything that's happening. So have a nice day with Jesus. <laughs> I gotta tell you that story. Anyway, then we're gonna have to stop and do communion here this morning. Oh, so much yet to do. Well, I'll, I'll go through three things. Um, I remember one time, there used to be this program, the Southwest, Southwest Radio Bible Show. Anybody remember that? It was on uh, WFMU, FME, which was like a Christian station back in the, well, I guess, 70s, 60s, 70s, all that. And so th this, uh, this uh, Southwest Radio Bible program was always about prophecy. So they would, oh, the, the topic would always be dire. Some terrible thing that's coming, some, you know, some, some catastrophe that's going on, some sinful things happen, right? And they would go through this thing. This, this program came out at six o'clock in the morning. So when your alarm went on, here comes the, uh, you know, we, we, we'd, we'd hear a little piece of the, the Southwest Radio Bible program and it'd be like this, oh, holy mackerel, man, things are getting really getting bad, the Antichrist is here, and you know, the beast has appeared, and all, you know, and then the other program would go, have a nice day with Jesus, have a nice day. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> let, me let me put three things up here, and then, and then we're gonna do communion. 
okay? God has, God is and God has spoken. He is not silent. He has chosen to reveal himself to the human race. <clears throat> he has revealed himself through angels, through visions, through dreams, through symbolic actions, in some cases through a gentle whisper, in some cases through miraculous signs, through prophets, through songs, through hymns, through David's psalms, all kinds of different ways. God, has see, God is a God who wants to make himself known. The first way he has revealed himself is through nature, natural revelation. And we'll look to Psalm 19, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a word or without a sound or a word. Their voice is never heard, but their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. There is something about the creation, the grandeur, the wonder, the sheer immensity, the intricate balance of it all, the precise unity, the multifunctionality of all the living systems on this planet. All of these things are meant to say something to us about the one who made them. Right? All of these things are meant to speak to us about who could this being possibly be who can make such wonders. And um, according to Paul, because we do not ask that question, we are without excuse for not knowing God. Paul Paul uses the same argument in uh, Romans chapter one, and he says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power in Godhead. Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Humanity he's talking about. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. That's where our thoughts are going now. Futility, meaninglessness, emptiness, pointlessness, no truth. Uh, Nor were they thankful, and their foolish hearts were darkened. It's a very, very dark um, picture there in Romans chapter one of of what happens when um, that when that when we go down that road, then secondarily, so there there is natural revelation. God has revealed Himself in nature. Secondarily, there is special revelation, which has to do with what God has spoken to us in His Word. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. So there were many Old Testament people who God used to c- convey His message, all of them had distinct personalities. When you read the Bible, you can kind of pick up on some of the personalities. But finally, when it comes to God being able to fully reveal himself or fully make himself known, he had to send his own guy. He had to to come down here himself. So um, now God has taken the, 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 the matter of revealing himself to an entirely new level. And the third level or the third type of revelation is the revelation of God in Christ. So God, who at various times and in various ways spoke to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. And then he goes through all of these descriptive um, phrases about who the son actually is, which we'll get there um, in just a moment. But now, this is, um, but this now has become the epitome, this revelation of God in Christ. When, when, when Jesus is on, in his last night on earth and he's sitting together with his disciples and they're eating their last meal together, um, Philip says to him, Lord, if you would just show us the Father, 
that would be enough for us, right? And Jesus turns and says, Philip, have I been with you all this time and yet still you have not known me? Anybody who has seen me has seen the Father. So you're seeing him right here and now. And so um, Jesus comes into this world. I mean, isn't it, all, isn't it all a miracle? Isn't it all just amazing that God has come into this world? And then, and then on the other side, you know, he has, God has come, come down into our world to become part of this, Philippians chapter two, right? Having, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So God has exalted him and given him the name, right? But we're also invited, if I can get this right, in Second Peter chapter one, it says, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and virtue. So he has made us partakers of the divine nature, having a escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. We have now been made partakers. We now have received the nature. So we are like little God people these days. We are little God people. We have this nature of God in us, newborn. That's what the new birth actually is. It is the, it is the spirit of God coming into our life to be born so that we will ultimately mature to become what Jesus always was. Hallelujah. Glory is right. Glory is right. That's our future. When John writes in chapter three, chapter three in First John, he says, "Beloved, um, now we are the children of God, but it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we'll see Him as He really is." So that's the future for us. We have been partakers of this divine nature. I now I got some God in me. You got some God in you. How much God do you have in you? Think about this now, because this really is the issue. We can start preaching now. How much God do I have in me, right? How much, and how much Steve do I have in me? And who's winning this battle? Who am I more attentive to, Steve, or, or the, the things that God is teaching and showing me and the life that God is trying to build in me? That, that's really the heart of what being a Christian is all about. And the more God we get in us, the more other lives we will impact and touch because that presence of God in our human life will reach out in love and will reach out in service and will reach out in caring and will actually wind up fulfilling what God had in mind for me to do. Hallelujah is right. So that, that's how it all works. So how much God you got in you this morning? 